HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am flying solo today. Uh, this is Aaron Fairbanks, longtime host of The Farm Report. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I got to take a breath because I didn't breathe, I think, for that whole intro. <sighs> I feel like taking breaths, guys, is like such a necessary part of life in 2017, taking a moment to breathe, relax, uh, reflect. I am back from a, maybe I'm just feeling that way too, because I'm back from a wonderful vacation uh, in Nicaragua. Somehow I found the most Roberta's locale in the entire country, a lovely little place called the Madeiras Village. I was out with uh, a friend of mine on her yoga studio, The Lab, out in Chicago, doing lots of yoga and meditation and digital detoxing, uh, which I highly recommend this uh, this year. Put a little bit of a vacay on your calendar, even if it's just a day, um, taking, taking some time. We have a jam-packed show today. I am super excited. Later in the uh, half hour, we are going to be bringing on one of my favorite folks in the sustainable flower world, and also in urban farm education, um, Molly Oliver Culver, who has joined us in the past. She was part of the panel that I helped moderate at the Cherry Bomb Jubilee last year. She's been a guest on the show. She is awesome. She's going to give us a little bit of a lowdown on sustainable regional flowers as we get ready for Valentine's Day coming up next week. 
or as I like to call it, my sister's birthday. Um, I randomly have two sisters, not twins, both born on February 14th. So at my house, that was always more the center of celebration. So stay tuned. We're going to bring Molly on in about 15 minutes to talk a little bit about her work and some special projects and collaborations she has going on for the holiday season this year. But before we get into that, I wanted to bring in another special guest, um, someone who makes my show possible here every week uh, on the Heritage Radio Network, our engineer and studio lead, David Tatashore. David, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am awesome. Although apparently not into breathing while I talk. Yeah. So if I'm sounding a little gaspy, yeah. apologies in advance. I guess just, I'm just excited to be back. Yeah. And you're just floating on air after your I getaway. am. I'm all like woo woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one of the things I, I missed while I was away um, is the the Good Food Awards, which happened um, this past January. David, you were out uh, for your first time at the Good Food Awards. They, yes. You can hear all um, all about them. You guys did tons of interviews. Um, it's a wonderful award ceremony that recognizes food producers across the country in all different types of categories, everything from honey and chocolate to charcuterie, meat, cheese. Um, it's really a wonderful... Um, designation to be a good food award winner because not only does it mean that your product tastes amazing, but it also means that you've been evaluated on a whole swath of other criteria from sourcing um, to employment practices to long-term sustainability. It's, it's really a fantastic program and you were out covering. So I wanted to get a little bit of a highlight from you uh, it was a multi-day affair. There was, of course, the award ceremony, but then also the mercantile. What jumped out to you as a first-time visitor? What were some of the exciting moments or great bites or conversations? Um, well, I guess, first of all, just kind of the scale of it was pretty impressive. Like, I didn't realize how many people were involved. I mean, it's no—so we were also out there. We went to the fancy food show not to cover it, which is just enormous, and it's not at that scale. But still, it was really impressive to see— just how many people are involved in in the awards and just this movement in general, the mercantile, um, and you know, like you said, the categories are pretty pretty broad. There's uh, you know all different things being covered, um, and yeah, we just had many conversations with uh, these producers. Um, off the top of my head, the ladies from Each Peach Market in D.C. were really wonderful. What um, is that, Each Peach? Um, so that's a market in D.C., which is just really committed to these like ideals of sustainability and local sourcing. Um, yeah, just <laughs> too, too many great people, I think, to name. <laughs> of course, yeah. You have, yeah, you got to go to the website, guys. Yeah, you you want to get the full if the full roundup. Um, I think we uploaded like, oh, gosh, I mean, like over between 10 and 20 hours probably of recordings. Um, so, yeah, lots lots of stuff to go through and. Lots of great conversations, for sure. Cool. Anything that um, stuck out from a kind of taste standpoint as either surprising or interesting or just, like, really delicious? Uh, well, I have to mention, and this actually wasn't even directly involved with the Good Food Awards, but um, so Angela Garo, who, uh, of Omnivore Salt and who was also, you know, obviously a part of Michael Pollan's uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, 
Oh, well, yeah. He is the guy who took Michael out on the famous boar hunt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So for, yeah. And I think also for omnivore salt, I feel like, um, it, I'm trying, now I'm just blinking on the name. His Kickstarter video always cracks me up because, oh, it's like Werner Herzog did the (laughs) audio for his Kickstarter video. I heard about it, but I haven't seen it. (laughs) It's, it's like, it's the most dramatic salt commercial you've ever heard. It's perfect though. And and it, (laughs) Having met him, I can like understand his wry sense of humor and, uh, you know, totally get that coming from him. But yeah, so he, I mean, he was involved with the Good Food Awards and the Good Food Mercantile. Um, but uh, actually, the night before the awards, we went for a Heritage Foods event at the Renaissance Forge, which is a space that he runs. It's, it's basically just, well, a forge and uh, a, a, like a metal working shop, but also he cures meat there. He makes wine there. He like just every, every space literally that you look in this, in this place, there is something to look at. Like there's tools hanging on the wall and, and dried persimmons hanging from the ceiling and just like it's cluttered, but in not in a in a messy way it's just like every possible inch is used in this space and um i thought we were going to honestly some restaurant because it was for cesare casella he was debuting this new uh, prosciutto that he's making and so i'm walking down i walked there from the motel i was staying at um and just like i'm walking down this dark alley one way dead end street yeah it's kind of strange you're in the middle of downtown san francisco you take a turn heading into a dead end alley there's yeah. like no big sign or no, lights nothing. and there's like you know auto body shops and like none of them are open of course because it's like nighttime and i'm looking around thinking like okay patrick is luring me out here to kill me obviously <laughs> and uh yeah so i walk into this place and it's just like like I said, just exploding with, with visual stimuli. And, you know, there was a, an enormous spread of food, like not only the prosciutto that Cesare was literally slicing <laughs> before our eyes, but just all these amazing meats and, and, uh, Kane, I, I met Chris Hell from Kane Vineyard finally put a face to that. Oh name. yeah. Long time sponsor longest, of the uh, radio. Running sponsors. Yeah. And his an wine amazing, is delicious. Yes. Like, I, <laughs> not, not, not advertising like it is delicious <laughs> and i wish i could have brought some home but i think um, patrick might have some in his office so if you like oh, i'm gonna creep you know, in there a little, later. a little sweet talking um but that is i have to say um kind of what you're describing is one of the things i love so much about the uh good food awards weekend is it really uh is a pl- is it becomes a meeting place for all of these wonderful food producers from everywhere across the u.s you know, Georgia, Michigan, D.C., New York, Missouri. It's really a, a national showing of the power of the good food movement. And because everyone's in town and because we work in food and beverage, people love to eat and drink and party and get together. And I think that is like that celebratory element becomes so important because the other, you know, 50 weekends of the year folks are really just busting ass making all this like beautiful stuff and really the kind of quotidian aspects of the small-scale food production i love thinking uh, in particular about cheesemakers who essentially are like 80 percent of my job is literally washing dishes <laughs> <laughs> so they're like but then it's they not, know how to party yeah it's not all the like it's not it's like not glamorous 
most of the time, but when it, but what, but when it's fun, it's definitely like big and tasty and delicious. Well, yeah. awesome. David, it was such a, like a warm and welcoming environment yeah. too. Like the, his team is incredible. Um, you know, Beth and uh, Veronica, they're just amazing. And that's great. That's great. And I would say the, um, other person I would point folks to, um, take a peek at, peek at if they don't know her already is, Winona LaDuke, who is one of the speakers from the awards ceremony, who is at the helm of an organization that um, protects and promotes and produces amazing, authentic, real wild rice. If you think you've had wild rice, I have to, I hate to break it to you, but you probably have not. Um, You've probably had some kind of version of a thing masquerading as wild rice. Um, and I, I would I would hearken you to to get on your Google, check out Winona LaDuke, order some Minnesota hand harvested wild rice. It's a totally different. Um, it actually looks like a bag full of kind of little black like pine needles um, that puffs and curls into this like delicious kind of toasty wonderful uh version of rice that is unlike anything else out there it is a truly wild food um and she was one of the keynote speakers at the good food awards i think that's one of the other things i love about the good food awards is they're always putting new information new people celebrating um projects that um i guess new is not quite the right word um because winona's been doing this work for a long time but folks that maybe aren't falling across everyone's radar, but should be. So definitely, definitely check out the coverage that Heritage um, was putting together. Um, David, thanks for giving us a little bit of insight. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have Molly on the line and we'll be talking a little bit more about flowers and sustainability this Valentine's Day holiday. So hang tight. We will be right back. escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Or come by Escapemaker's Blue Tent and Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Markets' own farmers and producers. Have you listened to On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio? Escapemaker has teamed up with Heritage Radio to design a vacation package that provides a first-hand experience of the local flavors from some of New York's best craft beverage producers. Listen in and book your trip at escapemaker.com slash heritage radio. No car? No problem. Escapemaker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. All right, we are back. And as promised, we are joined on the line by Molly of Molly Oliver Flowers. Molly, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Erin. 
I am ex- be with you. I'm excited to have you back and to talk um, about flowers. So Molly runs a, an amazing flower business that does all types, like really serves all your flower needs. And in addition to that role, she is the co-farm manager and director of adult education at the Youth Farm, a wonderful uh, urban farm and education center out in Crown Heights. And I think occasionally those those two positions overlap. Um, but Molly, I was I got an email from you talking about a really exciting collaboration you're doing for this upcoming Valentine's Day holiday. And I thought, who better to come on and talk to us about what we should be thinking in relation to flowers uh, as as the holiday approaches. So um, <laughs> I know there's like a lot to cover in the world of flowers, um, but maybe let's start with some kind of broad strokes um, when when we're purchasing flowers. What are some of the things that kind of normally um, are happening? I'm thinking one of the stats that you put out there is that 80% of the flowers that we're purchasing are grown abroad. And so I think just to orient people, maybe we you can give us a little bit of the kind of traditional lay of the land, and then what are some tools uh, via businesses like yours that we can arm our listeners with to be making better flower choices? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it, it really is kind of a, pardon the pun, it's a thorny issue. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of research still needs to be done um, regarding social practices around the globe, um, farm worker labor rights, and studying the environmental impacts of hot hops flower growing. But, um, yeah, to kind of give the basic lay of the land um, for those people who aren't super aware of the origin of their flowers, um, roughly 80% of the flowers that we buy in the U.S. are imported. Um, 20% of them are grown here, primarily in California, um, by and large. Um, So whereas even New York State used to have um, a more robust local flower-growing community, um, we don't even really make the cut into that 20%. Our sliver of production is so small that we we aren't captured there. Um, California grows 76% of our uh, North American-grown flowers. Washington State grows 6%. New Jersey grows 4%. uh, so, yeah, so most of the time when we're buying flowers at our grocery store um, or corner bodega, those flowers are coming primarily from South America, countries like Colombia and Ecuador for the most part. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so what are kind of the issues involved? Like I was saying, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky. Um, there are different studies out there that have started to look more closely at, um, for example, CO2 uh, output of uh, greenhouse-grown flowers around the globe. Um, and we have that same problem here. So mm-hmm. looking at the environmental environmental impact and sort of the transport footprint, I think is a little bit more complicated of an issue. Um, but what I'm really interested in looking at is just the, the sheer potential for Um, growing more flowers here locally, creating more jobs, preserving more farmland, um, providing more food for our local bee population, which we know is super important. Um, We at the moment have around 6,000 
flower and foliage farms across the U.S. Um, and that is, that's actually a 16% increase since 2007. Um, and by the way, I'm pulling a lot of these statistics off of slowflowers.com. Um, the author, Deborah Printing, has done a wonderful job of kind of marketing the importance of slow flowers and kind of coined the term slow flowers as a way to bring awareness around where do flowers come from. Um, yeah, one I'm thing a big I think fan of One hers. little factoid I think is kind of interesting and, and stark is that about 60% of our flower farms have gone out of business since 1992. Wow. And so... People of our age, our generation, younger people, we aren't as aware of the fact that on 28th Street, even here in New York City, um, the retail, the wholesale flower district, uh, that used to be populated by growers from Long Island and Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, who would just back their trucks up um, into those stalls and sell directly. So consumers um, and retailers used to have a much more direct relationship with the farmer. And as we know, when it comes to our food, um, if we like shopping at farmer's market or we like being a CSA member, a lot of the reasons why we do that is so that we can have transparency in that relationship. And we know we can talk to the farmer about, you know, how do you use pesticides or advocate for low pesticide use and also inquire about, you know, what are the ways that you benefit your workers? What do you pay your workers? What kind of living conditions do you help provide? Do you provide health insurance? Um, all of these things. And so the farther and farther away the, the source or the origin of that product, clearly the less and less we know about what's going on and what it is that we're supporting when we buy them. And so with flowers, it's, it's a super big issue, right, because 80% of the time we really don't know um, what environmental impact or social impact uh, is happening to produce those flowers. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts. Kind of, of nuts um, and there's bolts. There's more I could say about there's, you know, new labels all the time that are meant to support consumers to understand um, the practices of these different farms. Um, but those are hard to find. Yeah, sure. And well, so I guess like in kind of broad strokes, all of the issues that we think about when we think about what's important to us with regards to our food supply really apply with with flowers too. worker rights, traceability, environmental impacts. Um, and then, of course, you know, you're do the, the kind of more cultural aspects of uh you know, what are, what are flowers that we're kind of used to seeing and um, are kind of the kind of trend or what are kind of trends right. in the industry and like what's the hot flower right now? And um, I'm so glad that you brought up Deborah's work um, through Slow, Slow Flowers. I would definitely recommend folks checking her out. It's slowflowers.com. She's been on the network a couple of different times. Um, we've done a few specials with her. She There's a great episode great. of uh, We Dig Plants. I think it's episode 129. Um, I, I'm a big, a big fan of hers. But um, kind of circling back to uh, your work and your business, like how did you get into the flower game? Like how, how did you decide like this is a thing that one, uh, I want to do, I want to pursue, and two, I can actually, you know, grow a business out of. Mm. Well, it wasn't as um, kind of methodical as you might think. <laughs> I 
got into farming over 10 years ago. I was definitely pulled to get involved with organic agriculture and food justice work after spending some time in South America myself um, and kind of witnessing a lot of the same parallel uh, food access issues and health-related issues that we face here in the U.S. Um, and it kind of felt like we were um, importing or exporting a really negative uh, relationship with food and agriculture abroad, and that didn't seem fair, especially in cultures where people still have relatively close ties with their farmland, with soil, with growing. Um, and so when I came back to the U.S., uh, quite honestly, when I finally found my way to a farm, I just fell in love with it and felt uh, relief and kind of um, a newfound mental stability <laughs> and kind of a hope for my future that I could do this and it would make me happy and I could learn a lot and feel satisfied and be outside and all those good things that come with farming. Um, but kind of fast forward, you know, three to five years, I was out in California studying organic agriculture at the Center for uh, Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems um, at, uh, in Santa Cruz. And I was introduced to flower growing there um, by Christophe Bernot, who was and is one of the farm, farm managers um, at UCSC's farming garden. He had a love of flowers, um, and we had to go out into the fields twice a week and cut, um, you know, buckets of, you know, maybe over 40 varieties of different cut flowers. And then we'd have to make bouquets and send them down to farm stands. And I actually... It was a really self-defeating process for me because we'd all watch our bouquets go off the market and then we'd see which ones would come back. And I really struggled. I struggled to make bouquets. I didn't like it. I felt frustrated and kind of hemmed in um, by some of these, you know, tricks of the trade in terms of how to make a standard bouquet, rules of three, and, you know, there's, there's a whole slew of them that are widely known um, by florists. But I struggled with that. Um, and then went on to work at an, a larger organic farm called Live Earth in Watsonville, which um, graciously permitted me to experiment with um, growing cut flowers. And so, again, uh, I kind of was doing all of the propagation, the planting, the carrying, the harvesting. Um, and so was kind of developing a skill set and specialization, I guess, at that point. And when I decided to come back to New York City where I had been working and where I went to college, um, you know, I, I just really felt and I missed the, the community of, of advocates working around issues of food justice um, and how we see systems of oppression play out in our food system. I missed that community and I wanted to do more direct work with people and I felt like there was urban agriculture, of course, happening on many different scales. Um, but I didn't know of any uh, sort of cut flower production that was happening. And so um, the timing was right, and a friend and colleague and fellow CAFSIS alum of mine, Elizabeth Eyre, had just begun a partnership with the High School for Public Service uh, over here in Crown Heights to start a one-acre in-ground farm um, at the Wingate campus. And so uh, we teamed up. And we broke ground in 2011, um, and 
to this day, we are growing around 3,000 square feet of uh, mixed cut flowers, and we offer um, a community-supported agriculture share, so a weekly bouquet, um, and we sell to several restaurants in Brooklyn, um, and we love teaching people about growing cut flowers, and um, fortunately, I've gotten a little bit better at making bouquets. <laughs> so I would say, you know, just through the familiarity and um, also kind of a desperate need to figure out how to make a living work as an urban farmer. And if you're a cut flower grower, a lot of times um, you have friends kind of tap you to do their weddings. Um, and so I kind of started out that way, just doing a couple of friends' weddings, learning a lot, and basically accidentally falling into the business. So I don't have any formal training with many of the amazing New York City-based um, florists. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, guys, if you're listening, um, call me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot. It's, it's great. It, there's, there are wonderful workshops out there, um, so I'm able to kind of get professional development as needed. And um, being an entrepreneur and a farmer, um, you know, I carry those skills with me. Um, but I'm learning more all the time about you know, how to be a better business person, but also how to do this business in a sustainable way as possible. So at Molly Oliver Flowers, we compost pretty much all of the ways. We try to give away as many flowers um, as possible, make sure guests go home with flowers as opposed to, um, you know, typical scenario of everything, including the vases, winds up in the trash at the, at the end of the night. So that's um, for like you mean you're talking about when you're doing an event like a a right, wedding or a big party when you parties. so yeah okay so kind of thinking too I I do want to talk a little bit about this like waste stream in the in the flower industry so I think what you're outlining now is like po- yeah post event what's happening but then I'm I'm wondering kind of like what are the other kind of spaces or materials or things that we want to think about when we're thinking about the like other end, the retirement plan for your cut flowers once they have been cut. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, what I do, uh, I know that I don't have like facts and figures for you as far as, you know, how many metric tons of waste does the flower or floral industry um, send into our waste stream. I know it's large um, because I've seen it firsthand. Um, In a lot of cases uh, for large events, the vessels that flowers are arranged into, along with the flowers, are simply thrown away at the end of the night. Um, And if you think about how many events happen in New York City on a daily basis, on a weekend, um, a lot of venues do, you know, up to four or five weddings a weekend. Um, That's a lot of waste on top of the food that we know we're not diverting from the the waste stream quite yet um, on a commercial scale. So um, I just... I couldn't really stomach that. Right, um, right. And so I, what I do is uh, not the most ideal for me yet, but I, I will go back to the event at the end of the night and collect all of the vessels, which are rentals, and I will bunch all of the flowers, um, pull them out of the vases, bunch them up into little grab-and-go bouquets, um, and have those placed out for guests to take home with them. And then whatever isn't uh, claimed, I will take back and compost at the youth farm um, or 
I have the good fortune of doing a wedding, let's say, at Brooklyn Grange, I can just leave the far away fair, amazingly, <laughs> to get composted. <laughs> one, um, one last stop. So my sort of post-event scenario um, involves, you know, late night, going back to the studio, um, and then dropping off at the farm. That sounds like a lot of work for you. Thank you for doing it, and hopefully I'm we'll on it. yeah, hopefully we'll like hopefully we'll come up with um, some kind of more uh, less personally labor intensive moments uh, going forward. Well, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you're seeing as far as um, trends in the flower space and and kind of how trends work there and and who drives them. Is it you know mm. things we're seeing from you know bridal magazines is it pinterest is it instagram and and how those things filter down to the work that you're doing when when a, a bride or a restaurant or some someone comes to you and they're like i really want x y or z how you kind of like manage that conversation in the context of where you're sourcing your uh flowers from and like what makes sense for your business mm -hmm. well seeing that we do live here in somewhat of a bubble, a bubble of New York City and a bubble of Brooklyn, because my business is based in Brooklyn, and most of the events I do are in Brooklyn, and largely my clients are living in Brooklyn. Um, you know, I think there's a certain eco-consciousness that drives what they are looking for um, when they come to me, but certainly it definitely helps to kind of see that trend towards more field-grown flowers um, or looser, more natural style of arrangement. Coming from, you know, top designers here in Brooklyn, um, but also, you know, then find those in the pages of Bride Magazine or even Mark Stewart. I mean, those trends are floating upwards. I feel like a lot of times they are stemming from artists, from the artists themselves. Mm -hmm. who are inspired and, and really, I mean, there's amazing people out there. Um, I think of Saipua or Emily Thompson, um, lots of amazing designers right here who are setting trends just through their vision. Um, but I think their choices in terms of sourcing locally is also impactful and, um, We've definitely moved away from, you know, the era of, you know, they call it low and tight arrangements of roses and hydrangea, you know, and lilies, um, which is interesting. In some ways it comes to backfire because there is still one last final rose grower standing on Long Island who who does sell in Union Square and, and we enjoy his garden roses a lot. But, you know, nine out of ten times, honestly, that I sit down with a client the first thing that they'll say is, we don't want any roses. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> you know, just, I get but, that. I totally get that. But you're, you're like, but we're not going to do like a bouquet of, yeah, you're like, let's talk about what you really don't want. Because I don't think it's like anti-rose. <laughs> right. It's not necessarily that. It's more like you don't want something monochromatic and cookie cutter. You want something that feels organic and unique and wild and beautiful and romantic. And I... You know, and I'm totally there with you. We're speaking the same language. <laughs> but there are beautiful roses. There are still roses that actually have bent. Um, as you might know, some of the roses that are now imported 
um, they've traded out the scent for the longevity because um, it just takes so many calories for the plant to produce that scent. So um, they've done some funky things to help with long-distance transport. And the trade-off is the scent. So when I say garden rose, I'm really thinking about a rose that truly has a scent, the kind that's really covered in thorns. It's not fun to handle. Um, those, by and large, are not the roses that most people are, are buying on Valentine's Day or purchasing on 28th Street. Um, so, yeah. So, There's a lot of hate for roses. Love hate. <laughs> they're not all bad. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk in just a second here about this interesting collaboration you're doing with Erica Weiner. But before we get there, for folks who aren't lucky enough to be in the kind of tri-state area and get their Valentine's Day needs met from you, how, like, what would you point them to? Like, what are the questions they should ask or the resources on a more of a national perspective, um, where they should be looking to make their flower purchases this time of year? Oh, great. Such a good question. Um, Well, I would just say, like, the more you ask your local florist and grocer and wholesaler for, um, you know, do you have any American-grown flowers, U.S.-grown flowers? Um, Do you have any local flowers? Uh, That is something that I I did from kind of day one on 28th Street, um, where most florists, a lot of florists go to buy flowers wholesale. And at first, there were these, you know, sidelong glances, like, what are you, why are you asking me this? Right. Um, but the more often I go there, people, the wholesalers are coming to me and saying, oh, no, you can't have that. That's not grown in the U.S. <laughs> so <laughs> the more we vocalize what we want, the more we see the results. So there's that level of it. And then I would, um, if you are, you know, in any city across the U.S., definitely go to slowflowers.com. You can punch in your zip code. Um, up will come a list of florists and farmers who are there to supply their locally grown flowers. Um, you can also go to the uh, American, the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, um, and that's a little bit of a mouthful. Their website is www.ascfg.org. Um, and that's another amazing resource. Um, they've got a, an amazing catalog of farmers, farmer florists, and florists that specialize in selling locally grown flowers. You can search it by zip code. You can search it by state. Um, it's an incredible resource. Um, and I know a lot of people have found me by going to that website. So if you're awesome. ever in that pinch, you're like, oh, God, what do I do? 1-800-Flowers, you know, no. flowers.com or go to ASCFC.org <laughs> um, as, as an alternative. As the alternative, as the equally easy alternative. Well, okay, so Molly, tell us, tell us about this kind of awesome collaboration that you have going on and how folks can um, be a part of it. Yeah. So um, I have teamed up with an old friend who happens to be an amazing jewelry designer and vintage jewelry seller, uh, Erica Weeder. I'm sure maybe some of you have heard of her. Um, she has a store on Atlantic Avenue in Borham Hill. Um, she also has a store on Elizabeth Street in Soho. Uh, and we've teamed up to offer locally grown flowers for Valentine's Day. You can order them online. You can pre-order now. Um, 
the sooner the better. Uh, <laughs> and you can do that on Erica Wiener's website. Um, we're selling three sizes. And uh, if you buy a bunch of flowers, I'll be the one there uh, handing it over to you. I'll be at the store on Tuesday. Um, that's Valentine's Day. Next Tuesday, 12 to 7. So you can pre-order online, and I'll happily wrap it up for you and hand it over. And if you were already planning to buy some jewelry or you were looking for a special engagement present, um, you can uh, use the price of your bouquet as a discount on a day of purchase in Erica's store. So essentially, if you were planning to spend money on jewelry, you will get the bouquet for free. Um, all those details are up on the, the Erica Wiener website. Um, you can also go to mollyoliverflowers.com, and you'll find the link right on the front page. And I will say we are also really excited to be donating 20% of all purchases to the Love Army, which is an initiative started by Van Jones. Um, and they are working hard to mediate messy conversations between conservatives and progressives across the country, which is something that Eric and I feel is really important um, at the moment. So it didn't feel right to do Valentine's Day somehow this year without sharing the love. And so um, we're calling this collaboration In the Name of Love, and it's really about celebrating self-love, celebrating love of partner, love of friend, love of grandma, love of whoever, and um, and just, yeah, that's the deal. Man, this, like, the, it appeals so deeply to, like, my... Midwest Lutheran upbringing with regards to the efficiency of my dollar going towards so many things that I support all at once. <laughs> and I get a beautiful bouquet to enjoy. And I get yeah. that. I mean, come on. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, awesome. Molly, it is always wonderful to hear what you're up to and follow your work. I would encourage folks to um, be in touch as they're planning their kind of future flower needs, uh, whether it's for this holiday season or events or special occasions in the future. MollyOliverFlowers.com. You can also find her on Instagram. She's at MollyOliverFlowers. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Erin, thank you so much. I'm such a big fan of, of you and Heritage Radio and it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Awesome. All right, happy guys. Valentine's oh, Day. happy Valentine's <laughs> Day to you. <laughs> um, that is going to bring us to the end of our show today. I do want to leave you guys with one other kind of interesting tidbit. Um, I would recommend checking out the Instagram feed daily overview. Um, this was a book that, um, they had at the resort I was at last week. And what it is is um, kind of satellite images from different locations all around the world. And every day um, the, the author of the site posts a photo from, from different um, parts of the world. And there's some amazing shots with regards to agriculture. Um, in particular, just kind of thinking about today's topic, one of my favorite images was uh, a really bird's eye view, as all the images are, of the tulip season um, out in Denmark. But definitely a, a, an interesting way to get a sense of kind of how agriculture looks 
from way, way, way up in the sky um, in all different parts of the world. It's really cool. It really gave me a, a lot to think about, and I would I definitely recommend you guys getting over and checking that out. Again, it's Daily Overview. You can find them on Instagram. There's also a book um, of, of the same name. It's called Overview. That is a beautiful coffee table book if you're into that kind of thing. Um, I can never have enough room on my coffee table for anything but like a beautiful bouquet of flowers. So um, regardless, uh, check that out. Um, Stay tuned. We will be back next week. I'm going to be flying solo for the next couple of weeks. My co-host, Charlie Culver, (laughs) Charlie Culver, I'm making up names. Charlie Comer uh, is going to be out of studio, but she will be back in March. So hang tight. There will be more from her soon. You, of course, are listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit radio. So if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a supporting member. A gift of any amount is a huge help. You can make a donation by visiting the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and clicking on the beating Heart, And while you're there, you get to check out all the amazing programs. Um, Lots of great stuff there. The homepage is always like an active, exciting spot to check out what we're doing. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It's great. It really helps other people find the show. It makes me feel good. Uh, I love hearing from you guys. So um, definitely stay in touch and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.